0: You're listening to an IOE podcast. Powered by UCL Minds. This is research for the real world. Conversations with researchers about the paths they've taken to shape our everyday lives.
1: is research for the real world. Hi, I'm Emily Macleod, and I'm a PhD researcher at IOE, UCL's Faculty of Education and Society. In this season of Research for the Real World, we want to highlight research that looks into the lives of refugees and asylum seekers, considering their experiences in the UK in terms of care, housing, education access and human rights, and making recommendations based on evidence. In this episode, I'm delighted to be talking to Dr. Bernadita Munoz-Cheraud. Bernadita is a Principal Research Fellow in Education at the Department for Learning and Leadership at IOE. Bernadita is a mixed methods researcher using both quantitative and qualitative methods, and her research interests include school effectiveness, school improvement, and accountability. She has worked in education at the school level, in academia and in the public sector, as a researcher and consultant in assessment and education. Her PhD and postdoctoral work examine the range, extent, and consistency of primary and secondary school effectiveness in the Chilean context. And alongside her career in education, Bernadita pursues a passion for writing fiction for young readers and has published more than 30 titles in Chilean Latin America. Bernadita, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, Emily. Thank you so much for inviting me. Really looking forward to our conversation.
1: It's great to have you here. Before I ask you a bit more about your work now, I'd like our listeners to get to know you a little bit more. And we often start by asking our guests how
0: they came to be where they are now.
1: So first of all, how did you become involved in education
0: research? Well, my first degree was psychology, educational psychology. And from a really early stage, I realized that education can really transform your world, your life, your, your experiences, everything. So the problem is that many times education reproduces itself. Sometimes we can really make something transformative. And that's what I'm interested in, in education. The power of transforming lives and overall the social justice aspect. In A very, you know, an equal playing field. And I want to see education as part of helping to get a more equal playing field than the other way around. So that's where my research and my personal interest comes from.
1: And you've worked in schools and in the private sector as well. So what brought you to academia?
0: Well, when I was in Chile, I was very lucky and I got a scholarship given by the British Council to come to England to study a master. And that really, really blew my mind. So I lived in in London. I studied at the Institute of Education a long time ago. And when it was time to go back, I realized how important this was, this experience. So then I came back to Chile and started to see how I could come back to England. And I started to realize that I could do a PhD, that I could get, you know, so academia was really like the driver to explore new spaces. And yeah, so I'm, I am I love to travel and to uh, think, you know, to make other places home. So then I managed to come for a PhD, to study a PhD at the University of Bristol. Then I did a postdoc there. And then I found a place at the Institute of Education five years ago, where I've been working as a researcher.
1: Oh, excellent. Because I'm a PhD researcher myself, I always find it really interesting to hear how everyone's career progresses. And having been a teacher myself as well, I know that it's not always straight from university straight into a PhD. No. Um, I also wanted to ask you about your fiction writing in your spare time.
0: How did you get involved in that? And, and is there any link between that and your day-to-day work? Well, I think research, it is a kind of storytelling. You want to, you want to tell a story and you research these stories in a different way. But I think the I would say that imagination is also very important because Mm. you know you will be asking questions you need to you know even for feeling uh ethical application to conduct your research you need to position yourself as conducting the study and be able to empathize with your participants to see you know is this going to harm them in any way Um, what i'm doing here with this research so i think fiction is of course it's a different game, it's a different, you know, outlet, but I think it shares many, many aspects in terms of the passion for writing and communicating stories that uh compelling. I completely understand what you're saying about that
1: telling a story though as someone who's got a lot of writing to do in this final year of my PhD I admire the amount of writing you must do in your spare time as a as a break from your writing in your day job as well so I'm quite impressed.
0: Well I I live I don't live in London I live in Bristol Mm. and at the beginning I thought that this was something really difficult the commuting but then i realized that i I could use it for writing Mm. and so i i had these blog spaces to write while on the coach or on the train and i think it's it is about finding those you know transforming those challenges into opportunities that's a really lovely way to look at it.
1: And yeah, a good train journey is always good for <laughs> getting some uh, writing done without the emails pinging. <laughs> so I want to speak more about your research now. And I know that one of your interests is in inequality in education and how we can support disadvantaged children. And you mentioned a little bit about that already. So how did you become involved in this area of
0: research specifically? Well, I also want to mention that I am a mother. So I have three children in in the, in the school and when my children were going to the school some years ago to a local comprehensive school they got ofsted came in and they had a require improvement judgement and that transformed enormously the school most of middle class parents left the school became understaffed undersubscribed and things became much more difficult and with that in mind, I thought, I th- so I thought, wow, how powerful this grade could be. Yeah. You know, one, two, three, four is a four point scale that tells so much in terms of price of housing, has such a massive effect. So I thought I want to really study inspection. And, and before what- you continue,
1: just for our listeners who aren't based in the UK, do you mind telling us a bit more about
0: Ofsted? Yeah. So, Ofsted is an agency, is independent from the government. It's an independent agency. And what they do is that they inspect schools, but not, not all, only schools in England, also hospitals. And they visit the school and provide an overall assessment of the quality of the school, taking information from that visit, but also from previous records. And they provide this report that can you can get it's a four point scale, so you can get outstanding, good, require improvement or inadequate and according to this grade, there will be the school will have a different path after these inspections and it's it's very powerful, it's mm-hmm. very powerful as a diagnostic tool, yeah. but also as a reputation you know it it affects very much the environment of the school
1: and you said that your research was prompted by your experience of being a parent in a school that was requires improvement?
0: Yes. At that time, there was a new head of Ofsted and she said, you know, we are concerned about, at the beginning, they were called intractable schools and then they changed it to stuck. She was talking about, at the beginning, Ofsted underestimated the problem and they thought that there were around 120 schools Then they said, oh, no, there are a bit more, there are like 500. But basically, these are schools that haven't received a good inspection grade in more than a decade. In that definition, there was the creation of a problem because this is not one of the grades. It's a way of understanding the progress of that school. So I thought this is really interesting because when I looked at where these schools were located, it felt like it wasn't evenly distributed. So they were located in very poor areas you ask yourself, is this the chicken and egg problem? Is it where the school is located or is it really what the school is doing? So I thought this is interesting to look in detail.
1: And what about students facing disadvantage as well? You've mentioned the areas and the schools. Are there groups of pupils that you're interested in researching as well?
0: Yeah. So for example, what we found through quantitative analysis of of a sample of around 540 stuck schools it's that they face a combination and of very unusual challenging circumstances so in these schools there will be higher rates of pupil mobility when i say pupil mobility i mean pupils that exit the school at non-standard times and so they can leave middle middle of school year for for example they are around eight percent of the students that go to these schools are mobile and to get a sense of comparison around half of it around 4.7 percent of these pupils will be mobile in a in a non you know in a different school in a comparison school so this is double the the issue so of course, pupil mobility is expressing maybe the parents moved, maybe this follows you know the a, a divorce or maybe those children the parents found a different place to live, or you know they found a different job. but it means that there are some change that this child is facing, so it is more represented in stuck schools, and also these schools are in poorer neighborhoods, so there is a way of assessing the extent of you know, the way in which a school is facing deprivation. So there's income deprivation index, Idaki, And we found that it's, you know, these schools are located in much poorer neighborhoods. So what I'm saying with this is there are certain things that the school is doing, and maybe they're doing a great job, but when it's time for the inspection, it's really difficult to disentangle those things. So maybe the, those teachers and those head teachers and those parents are delivering and doing a great job. But they, because they're working on, in a very challenged context, it seems if you just look at the outcomes, the academic outcomes, it might look like they're not learning much. That's not necessarily the case. So that, that's the point, is to bring in that context and understand what these schools are doing to improve the opportunities and the effectiveness of the school.
1: Yeah. When I was a teacher myself, I remember the challenge of students coming in in the middle of the year. And it just, like you say, it it doesn't, Work with the way that you're taught to teach and the system that the school is within, which starts in September. <laughs> and you work this week, we're going to teach that, this week, we're going to teach that. And it, it's really difficult. It's that wider system, isn't it? So I'm presuming that some of those mobile pupils that you've talked about are st- students who experience homelessness or come from refugee backgrounds. What kind of specific challenges do they face from their po- point of view coming into education?
0: I think all of these also resumes all the challenges are also material, so many of again another indicator of related to poverty is free school meals, so these people are the ones that, that go to stuck schools are twenty two percent of them go to stuck schools in comparison to around thirteen or you know or ten percent that go into into a non stuck school so is kind of doubling the challenges so basically you have a combination of of a lot of challenges and what we saw is that through time so inspection plays a role here because these schools they had to work with more challenges in in the way that they they were progressing so the inspection brought help to some extent to increase these challenges because in terms of the combination of them so maybe they always work with a little bit of people with free school meals but then this this amount of people with free school meals increased over the decade once you know different more than three inspections were received so that's that's something to have in in common that this is a cumulative effect and it has to do also with where the school is located and Something that really has made me think really hard is that a better predictor to, you know, to see if if a school will become stuck or not, more than the academic progress or value added that the school had, a better predictor was the proximity with schools that are outstanding or good. So there's a local competition as well going on. So the further away a school is
1: from schools that are good or outstanding... The more likely it is to stay in having a lower Ofsted rating for longer.
0: Yes, because otherwise, what happens, yeah, what happens is the school that is outstanding, more children would like to go there. So you, get, you know, that so then there's more room in this other school and maybe the school is undersubscribed and maybe the teachers say and the head teachers maybe we can expand our catchment area maybe we can get more children because we need more children to operate get funding according to how many people we have on roll so they end up with you know more proportion of children that need more support and that's if you think about it makes the playing field even more unequal Absolutely. You can see how these pockets emerge uh, of
1: disadvantage just within education thinking absolutely yes this is maybe a difficult question and you've started to answer it already but what can be done to try and improve that situation then for the students who are affected both in terms of the Ofsted level but also I'm aware that some of our listeners will be working in schools like that
0: what can be done I think the first point that is really really important is that even these schools that had been stuck for you know a decade we had unstuck. we found the unstuck schools. So schools that in the last inspection obtain a good grade, so even though it it took them a long time, maybe ten years, it is possible to get unstuck, and I think that's really important. And there are also a lot of lessons learned from for Ofsted in terms of how to make inspections more fair. So, for example, considering the context, maybe inspect the area, not make schools compete for students in one local area because then always there will be a loser and a winner. You know, there are some points in terms of what can be done at the policy level that could be really, really important. And we are talking about those. But also super important, especially for refugees, is that, and, and here I also want to link it with my own experience. I, I mentioned that I, I'm a mother of, of a child in, in a primary school. And this year, we, we, the school uh, received 30 children coming from Afghanistan. And at the beginning, because if you don't know, you may be quite scared, like, "Oh, what's going to happen in the school? Are these children traumatized?" or what's going to happen?" And what we found was that they're so resilient. They speak already three or four languages. They have a strong sense of community, their ethos is is very important and and you know, then relationships start happening, friendships this expansion of the world or, and also of your of your prejudice you know you when you don't when if you just look at the media you might think that these children are always you know in a deficit position but that's not true those children that come and those people that emigrate uh, usually have so many resources in terms of cultural capital, in terms of life experiences, and if you look at the academic records, what you see is that if you wait until they learn English, you can see incredible progress, academic progress. I'm talking about. So it is about giving time to settle in, which also links with. I know you were going. You are going to be talking about housing, but. For example, these families that came to our school were placed in a hotel for more than a year. So that makes things extremely difficult. You know, if they can build this home in this place, because you know they are flying away from war, or you know there are many many issues that make them come. And once they are settled, they they are incredible. I mean, it's a really reward to be able to to share with them. You know be parents in the same school.
1: You're making me smile. remember some of the refugee children I remember teaching. They wouldn't necessarily know English straight away, but I was a French teacher and I was teaching from like the bottom up so it was always really lovely to see some progress I think in other lessons it was often hard for them to follow what was going on but because I was teaching them what the word for dog or house (laughs) is in a new language they were more on a level playing field and it was really lovely to to share that experience and it sounds like your experience as well is that the school is valuing that culture that the students bring with which is easier said than done I imagine is there anything that you think schools can do to really value what students are bringing especially if
0: they're coming in the middle of the year I think yes I think you know they, they bring a lot of incredible experiences so it's building those bridges and giving them giving them time and Usually it works really well when there's there are a certain group of children that you can work you know together instead of only one isolated one. And I think also there's something at the level of the point of diversity we We learn so much, especially from those that think differently from us those that speak other languages. And here I'm also again talking about my personal life because I was an immigrant here until I became a citizen. And I think it's so interesting that you, what I found or what these children would find common sense will be different from the other children. And, uh, you know, my food is the best food. And, and then you think, oh, you, you, you do all of these kind of projections into the unknown. So I think it helps so much for the world that, that we are living and we are preparing children to be exposed to different life chances, and life circumstances. And even my children, you know, they would feel really privileged of having a library or a swimming pool to go because these children were like, really, this is something we can go? And something that it becomes, you know, like something you don't, you give for granted. It really makes you realize the treasure of you know of a community of a culture of living in peace of having teachers that can turn up in the school so they bring so much in in that respect and and more schools that work in challenging circumstances circumstances are attracting teachers that have this incredible vocation this incredible call these teachers are not there because the salary is better because it's in a fancy place that they want to live these teachers are there because they want to make a difference so these places are hubs for a lot of you know social justice and they build this sense of trust and they focus on the strength that the school have and obviously, is one thing and they think it's important but they do so much than that you know they're helping parents coping with mental health with you know with housing with you name it so it's a sense that the school is more than its its academic results it's also a, a core part of of the community and of what people mm-hmm. really need and we saw that so much with the pandemic
1: didn't we the way that schools became the center of their local communities in a lot of in a lot of cases absolutely you mentioned that you were an immigrant here and that you came to the UK to do your PhD. I was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit more about your PhD and postdoctoral work as well because we focused on your research more recently.
0: Yeah so my, my main driver is inequalities and there is a way to look at what the school is adding and making a distinction between what's in the context, what's out of the school control, and what is the school doing. And this is a methodological approach that is value added. Here we had contextualized value added in in 2010, and then we talk about progress aid. So it's a measure of progress that pupils do in a school over a period of time. I thought this was fascinating because in Chile where I came from, we only we only have raw results. So everybody takes the same test. And of course, surprise, surprise, those schools in a more advanced place are always at the top of the list. And it's a very unfair way of looking at academic outcomes. So I really thought that there's there was a potential in this contextualized value added measure. It's not perfect, but it's closer to what we need to be looking at and so my phd is about that it's about i implemented value-added measures using chilean secondary data and was able to identify schools that otherwise they would look like progress you know achieving below expectations but the truth is they were adding incredible value so that was my phd and my postdoc as well that was funded by the esrc was to look at how these indicators could be better used by policymakers. So it was about understanding their views about these in- indicators. And is it used by policymakers in Chile at the moment? At the moment, no. <laughs> these things Not take yet. time. <laughs> Not yet, but uh, at least there's this awareness that there, there's something more than raw measures. We need to look at, you know, different indicators because also, you know, you've in schools. There's no such a thing of a good or a bad school. The school could be great in one dimension and not very great in another dimension. And even, you know, by departments, I mean, if you look at bigger schools, there's much variation within the school that we need to be looking at.
1: That sounds so important because this podcast is all about research for the real world, making a difference and making links with outside of academia so that our evidence can be used to make changes in the real world and it sounds like really on in your career your work has the potential to do that even though (laughs) we understand those things take time to to actually make the changes before we wrap up for our conversation today i was wondering what your next steps are if you have any exciting future plans
0: oh i do (laughs) so Ofsted used this word that is off-rolling. I don't know if you've heard about it. And it's basically school exclusions. It's taking children out of the role that schools do to look better in the assessment or in this this inspection. And so I'm interested in, in studying school exclusions and from the point of view of what happens when... Because this is this idea that some children need to be excluded because of behavioral issues and they will get the right support. Well, is that the case? You know, where are these children going to these referral units and what is the experience of those children? Where are those voices? We are not hearing that. And we are kind of all being very, you know, complacent and not really doing enough here. And uh, I'm interested in, in that, in studying in detail exclusions, how they work who they are affecting, and is there any positive story that we could bring, or we just shouldn't be excluding? That sounds so interesting. So, would you hope
1: to speak to the young people who have, who have experienced exclusion as well?
0: Yeah, I would do a secondary data analysis first to understand the extent and how it works, and then I will follow up with with case studies uh, uh, with young people and children that have been excluded and what their experiences have been.
1: Well, good luck with that. That sounds super interesting. I look forward to following that in the future. And I'm sure that any teachers listening will be really interested because you're right. The the language and discourse around exclusion is so common and we hear about it a lot, but it's also You're right, I'm not aware of any research (laughs) that looks into it in detail. Thank you so much, Bernadita. It's been really interesting to learn about your research today. And I've especially loved hearing about the joy that refugee children and mobile children can bring to that school community and the positive stories of schools listening and valuing that culture as well. So thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much. You can learn more about Bernadita's work through the links in the episode notes. If you've enjoyed this podcast, we have an archive of 16 past seasons. Search IOE Podcasts from wherever you get your podcasts to find more episodes of Research for the Real World, as well as other podcasts from the IOE. And a quick favor before you go, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we'd really appreciate it if you could give the IOE Podcast a rating. Five stars would be nice if you're enjoying the show, and that will help us to reach more people who are interested in hearing about such important work. I'm Emily. Thanks for listening. Research for the Real World is produced by IOE Marketing and Communications, and
0: IOE research development. The theme music was created by Rob Cochran. Tatiana Sotero Diaz is the series advisor. Amy Leibowitz is the series producer. And Jason Ilagin is the executive producer of the IOE podcast.
1: Thanks so much for downloading and listening to this IOE podcast.